When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Blue Dots! And hello to everyone listening on the podcast. This is a special episode of the New Scientist Weekly podcast, recording live from Jodrell Bank Observatory at the Blue Dot Festival. Uh, Yay! Yay! (laughs) I'm Rowan Hooper, and uh, we've got special guests on the show this week. Uh, Well, first of all, Abby Beale from New Scientist. She's our resident astronomer. We've also got geoscientist and TV adventurer, volcano diver, Chris Jackson. And we've got... Blue Dot artist and Emmy and uh, what's the other one? Mercury. Mercury nominated <laughs> composer Hannah Peel. <laughs> Welcome all. Yeah, coming up on the show today, um, we're going to be talking about exoplanets um, and what we're going to discover with the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope. And we've got a story of joy segment, which is basically when we're going to be talking about something that happened recently in the world of science that's brought us, that has brought us joy, or maybe, I should say, has just not made us gloomy. Yeah, yeah, the story of joy segment. And we're also going to talk about what happens when you grow tiny human brains in the lab, and we've got a section on our favourite solutions to the world's problems. And at the end, we're going to have plenty of time, I hope, for questions from the audience, so get thinking, and uh, we'll do our best to do that later. But look... We want to start off with astronomy because if you, you know, you just literally look out the tent door there and it's the Lovell radio telescope, the third largest steerable radio telescope in the world. Uh, So it's only fitting to start with astronomy news. And obviously the biggest astronomy news of the decade is the James Webb telescope, space telescope, finally up and running, sending back amazing images. Hannah, uh, I want to start with you because, you, you know, you're inspired by astronomical stuff and you wrote an album called Mary Cassio, Journey to Cassiopeia. Um, So tell us about what you've got from the latest uh, James Webb images. Uh, Well, I mean, you can't not marvel at everything. I don't know if anybody's been, there's there's even a kind of a tent here. You can go in and view the images and talk to people that are involved. But I think it's, you know, there's there's always this realisation that we are very small and also we are very huge as well. And it's it's the dealing of that as a human being. And creatively, I find that really exciting. It's You sometimes have to put the perspective of that to the back of your mind in order to create something. But how do you create something that has that magnitude that still has the personal and the personification of something as well? Uh, can you actually tell people what the Mary Cassio oh, album yes. was about? Because I forgot to do that. And that's, <laughs> uh, that's exactly doing it, isn't it? Putting the personal into a story. Yeah, like. yeah so 
Mary Cassio. She's kind of like, um, if you know of the electronic artist Daphne Aram or Dila Derbyshire, and uh, I imagined Mary Cassio around the time of Brexit, and she decides that she's going to take off in a rocket and go visit the star constellation. And um, we'll look at Earth in that way. And, um, you know, it became a record, a journey more of the mind rather than an, a, you know, factual kind of journey. I didn't like study where you would actually go, but that journey of whether Mary Cassie has actually gone there in reality, or is it a journey of her mind, or is she passing on into the next life and this is her journey into the next stage of life? And it was an exploration of the mind and the neurology behind things in order to kind of take the planet and our universe in and, and give it perspective from the human experience as best I could, anyway, without going into space. Yeah, it's amazing. And Abby, as I said, you're our resident astronomer and new scientist. About the James Webb stuff, it's got loads going on, but what are you most looking forward to? Yeah, so when, um, I think I've, hopefully everyone's already seen those images, um, and they're so beautiful, but when they came out, I was most excited about the graph that was also published, um, and that was basically the atmosphere of a gas giant. It was a planet about a thousand light years away from us. And gas giants are sort of, they're really cool. They're like the size of Jupiter. But what I'm really excited about is that JWST is also going to be looking at the atmosphere of rocky planets. So we, um, we know that obviously life exists on at least one rocky planet, this one. So people think that maybe rocky planets could be a good place to look for, for life outside the solar system. And there's one particular set of rocky planets um, which orbit a star called TRAPPIST-1, which is 40 light years away. And there's seven of them, they're all rocky. And three of them exist in what they call the habitable zone, which is the region around a star where it's warm enough and light enough for um, liquid water to exist on the surface. And obviously because that's what enables us to have life here, they think that that could be a good place to start to look. And um, yeah, JWST, there's three groups who are going to be looking at the TRAPPIST um, system in the first year of JWST's life, and they hope that they're going to um, get the emissions from the atmosphere of one of those rocky planets, which I think would be amazing. Yeah, really cool. There's also some real other exciting planets that it's going to be looking at. One's called um, 55 Cancer E, and they think that, which is very catchy, <laughs> but what makes that really cool is they think that it might it might basically have mountains made of diamond. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You've, you've got to keep your voice down because you just know there's somebody on this planet yeah. waiting to go up there. Yeah, that's that. true, yeah. Um, Chris, does, does geology on other planets excite you as much as it does on Earth? Yeah, it does. It does. I, I mean, I was just going to remark about JWST. I think the thing that was remarkable for me as a geologist and just somebody who's interested in science and how we communicate and how we use science to, as a vehicle for bringing people into science but just how we provoke um, curiosity in people was was all of the conversations that were provoked by JWST you know there was this physical visual beauty of the images the imagery there's also for me a big broad discussion which has been brought up about the naming of just the James Webb Space Telescope of course and that speaks to something really quite important about the democratization of science who gets access to science, who gets things named after them, and by having things named after them, who then is welcomed into or pushed away from certain bits of science. So I think, I think the JWST, without going too much into that particular point, I think it does 
generates a lot of interest in many different ways and allows lots of different conversations to happen. The geology of other planets, I think, is, is fascinating. I'm still struggling with the geology of this planet, <laughs> having spent 25 years of my life trying to understand various bits of it. But I, th I, think, I think there's just a, you know, putting aside the kind of space colonization thing of like, we need to know about it so we know if we can live there. I think it's just a natural set of inquiries again, isn't it? It's just that provocation of what if and what, you know, what might be there. And I think if we have that as a, as a species, that might allow us to tackle some big problems that, and big challenges we have here on Earth, which I guess we'll come on to talk about later on. But it's just stretching the mind in different ways to make it work for you know, science and society globally in the, in, on this planet. Abby, you mentioned the, the TRAPPIST system 40 light years away, right? So what I wondered was, if you had the James Webb Space Telescope 40 light years away looking at Earth, would we be able to tell from the spectra of the atmosphere if there was life on Earth? It's a good question. Um, so I think, first of all, we can be quite sure that we would be able to see the atmosphere um, and we'd be able to see what it's made of because the TRAPPIST planets are about the same size as Earth and like you said, they're 40 light years away. There was also a paper out earlier this week which was talking specifically about a different planet, but they were modeling the data they expect to get from JWST. And they were saying that, so with rocky planets, I think it's hard to tell if they have an atmosphere or not at all. So if, if the emissions are coming from the atmosphere or if they're maybe coming from straight from the surface, if there is no atmosphere. But this paper was saying that due to some specific differences between the emissions, they would be able to tell what's from the atmosphere and even maybe in certain conditions, what's on the surface as well. And I guess if you studied Earth long enough, you'd see that there are living processes, like there are things being made, like there's processes happening. But I don't know about being able to tell exactly if um, there's life here, but you, I guess what they would do is follow up with radio studies. And if you had capability 40 light years away, of studying the Earth in radio, then you'd be able to tell that things are living here because we've been broadcasting radio waves for about 120 years and um, the search for extra extraterrestrial life, SETI, has been actively broadcasting for 50 years. So if there was someone on the Trappist listening, they should be able to hear us. Um, and it reminds me of um, James Lovelock who came up with the Gaia hypothesis. When he worked for NASA, in the 60s, he was on the Mars program, and um, he basically figured out by looking at the spectra of the atmosphere of Mars that it was just CO2, and it was basically a dead planet, and he told that to NASA, his bosses at NASA, who were making the Viking landings to go there <laughs> to look for life on Mars. Uh, he basically said, you don't need to go, I've just you know, look at this, there's nothing there, and they fired him. I think they fired him, <laughs> and then went ahead with the landings anyway, and, and sure enough, didn't find any life. <laughs> Okay, um, now it's time for the Story of Joy segment, and we wanted to introduce this because we're at a festival, basically. We don't want to talk about COVID, uh, we want to talk about some more fun stuff. Yeah, we want um, a bit of fun here. So this segment is about some story that you've seen this week, preferably science related, that has given you some hope or joy in some way. It doesn't need to be a news story, um, maybe just something that you've come across recently. I think Hannah said she wanted to go first, was that right? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. <laughs> well, I'll give you time to, why don't you go first, Abby? Yeah, I can. <laughs> um, 
Earlier this year, we actually, in the magazine, we had a news story. Um, one of our colleagues, sorry, it wasn't a news story, one of our colleagues visited um, a research centre in Cambridge, which was um, a research centre for intelligent birds. And it was closing down because of Brexit and pandemic-related um, funding issues. So there were going to be 25 jays and seven rooks that needed new homes. <laughs> and this centre was funded 22 years ago by um, Nicola Clayton. And it's been really important in developing our understanding of the cognition of Corvid. So they're um, members of the crow family. So some things that it did, it showed that birds have abilities that we once thought only humans could do so and great apes such as understanding the minds of others um, and reflecting on the past and planning for the future but that article that we had in the magazine actually kick-started a campaign somebody saw it they started they'd started an open letter and um, it was like signed by lots of people and it raised from public donations five hundred thousand pounds and now the center's been saved so we it's amazing yeah <laughs> and what, um, it's a, what, what I love about this story is, um, I know about 10 years ago I went to visit this lab, and as you say, it's full of jays and other corvids, and Nikki Clayton took me into the aviary, and all the jays like, saw her coming in, and they came to the front of the cage to, to greet her. And then I came in behind her, and all the jays ran away and hid, and they said, sorry, sorry, like that. And I was like, what just happened? And she said, oh, it's because they don't know you. They know your face. And they're running away, and they're saying sorry to me for not greeting her. And I was, so that, you know, they have yeah. this incredible, incredible cognitive powers. Um, so it's great to see that um, carrying on. Chris, what's your story of hope or jo joy? So, so mine is um, a, a story, if you, if you forgive me, I'm a geologist. So it's a story of how amazing geology is. It's also a story of how important geology is. And it's also a story of how geology can generate collaborative work which spans oceans and nations. So we have these things in geology called turbidity currents. These are underwater avalanches of material, so sand in water. So just like a snow avalanche, but underwater. And offshore West Africa, there's a thing called the Congo Canyon. It's this big, big canyon cut into the continental shelf. And in 2019, these scientists went out there to see how big the flows were going down the Congo Canyon. They went out there moored up all of these bits of equipment at great expense in the Congo Canyon. What happened in 2020, a massive flow came down, ripped them all out of the water at great expense and sent them up to the top of the ocean, right? And they lost all of this. What they recorded though at that time was a flow that was going between five and eight meters per second. So this flow was going, it was carrying enough sediment that it was one third of all of the sediment delivered to the world's oceans by all of the rivers in the world in literally a few hours went through this canyon and it took out all of these things this thing went over a thousand kilometers to about five kilometers water depth in the atlantic ocean i'm waiting for the joy and that's the fear the joy is this remember i said that it ripped out all the equipment that was doing the monitoring it then took two years of a multinational effort of fishermen and, you know, and anglers and international shipping vessels and governmental organisations collaborating to scour that part of the Atlantic Ocean, bearing in mind the things they were looking for were the size of footballs. Also bear in mind the batteries that were broadcasting the positions of these sensors only lasted three months. So it was a three-month international race against time to collect data of one of the most powerful and impressive 
global geological events we've ever seen to try and get those data back. And the paper was published this week in Nature Communications. Amazing. I wasn't involved. This isn't a sales pitch. I wasn't an author. But I just think it's an amazing story about an amazing geological phenomenon, but also speaking to the power of collaborative work. The reason it's important for all of you sitting here is because these flows are so big they can snap things like telecommunication cables and send nations in West Africa in particular into economic and, in, and, and internet darkness. So I think it's a really important thing as well. So that was my story of joy is just the power of people coming together for science. Oh, Anna? I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> I've lived in a bubble all week. Well, Although, you've got a good um, excuse for that. I can tell you something I've invented in my mind. Yeah. It's quite a good story of yeah. joy. <laughs> it's the invention of a, uh, I think, called a nano skin. So um, a way for us to wear a type of skin that we can feel. So people that might have lost their senses, uh, nerve endings, a type of skin that you can put on and then it'll wrap round. Or even if you've lost your eyesight, maybe it could be a skin that allows you to, to see again, hear music. Uh, feel the vibrations of the music. We we literally did this story a couple of what? weeks ago. So <laughs> it's real. Yeah. Well, no, it's actual human skin. They've covered a. What? a they, they've co they've. This grown, is a great story of joy. <laughs> <laughs> they made a robot hand and grew human skin over it, Amazing. so that it, it will will get, allow eventually. You know, you can imagine that the you'd be able to feel really properly feel through a prosthetic. So yeah, it's halfway there. I love there. that. Yeah. Great. I think I must have read that in my sleep one day. <laughs> I, think, I think the thing that's amazing about that is, and I think this might come on to you know, what you're going to talk about later on, but the idea that you could put people in other people's skin is probably one of the most important things we could ever do for kind of equality and justice in the world, is to build empathy, is by allowing people not just to re-feel, having had maybe a loss of you know, some sense, but also to sense what others sense. And that's the thing I think we're struggling with a lot at the moment is to try and give people the power of empathy. So if this skin could do that, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> I, um, I edited a story earlier this year, which was about um, an artificial skin as well. And it was basically um, these researchers, it's like you could wear it as a glove, for example, and they pump these chemicals along your skin. And so what they're doing is trying to mimic different sensations. So they were using like capsaicin, which is in like chili peppers, to make you feel warm. And they were using like mint to make you feel cold. It was basically because I think a lot of these, um, in the past, like artificial skins have just been able to feel like pressure, but they were using all these different chemicals to have different feelings. Wasn't there like a Black Mirror episode of where they, people were getting in other You'd be surprised skins how often we have something? ideas yeah. and there's like, that's been in Black Mirror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, my story of hope or joy is about animal medicine. And a few weeks ago, we had this amazing story about, and we reported it on the podcast, of um, ants, that when a, a soldier ant returns to the nest that's injured, there's a, a nurse cast of ant that uses um, antibiotic secretions and treats the wounded ant, right? And that was the story. But what the next, what's just come out this week is um, a story of showing that chimps have been observed. Like uh, there was a chimp that had a, a wound on its foot, and its mother took some insects and applied them to the wound. And then another one, a chimp had a cut on its lip, and, and uh, another chimp applied these insects to the wound. So it's it, it would be this extraordinary case of like pharmaceutical use of uh, medicine in the animal world. 
the, and this is the other thing about empathy as well, like that we don't know how far empathy extends in chimps. We know that they are capable of some, but like to be able to, to treat another animal that's not, you know, not even necessarily their relation really tells us a lot about like the social imagination that chimps have. So I thought that was really cool. Let's just take a quick break to tell you about New Scientist Live. Yeah, New Scientist Live uh, is the world's greatest... I'm saying this at Blue Dot, but um, it is the world's greatest festival of science and technology. Um, it's a great event. Chris is going to be there. It's returning to London this year on the 7th to the 9th of October. Go to newscientist.com slash NSLBD to book tickets to it. It's uh, unmissable. And now a couple of messages from our sponsors. People age at different speeds and the date on your birth certificate may not represent your inner biological age at all. If you're looking for ways to extend your health span and slow down the aging process, the keys to health and longevity may run in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to improve your metabolism, reduce stress, improve sleep, and optimize your health for the long haul. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition and supplementation for your body. For a limited time, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com slash newscientist. That's insidetracker.com slash newscientist. What's it like to lose your hearing? Why is the cause of hearing loss often so hard to diagnose? And what innovative technologies might help scientists develop new therapies? How We're Wired is the new neuroscience podcast from the Bertarelli Foundation. And in the latest Focus episode, join producer Dr. Eva Higginbotham as she uncovers the complexities of hearing loss, from tinnitus to the mysteries of the inner ear, and hear from a dancer who's learning to live with reduced hearing. The podcast is How We're Wired from the Bertarelli Foundation. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right, we're going to talk about brainoids now. And regular listeners to the podcast will know that uh, I like to get in a science fiction reference wherever possible. But in this story, it was the researchers that did it. And this is um, a team at Cortical Labs in Melbourne, and they grew these brain organoids. And right, these are things where basically you get stem cells, make them turn into brain cells, and then grow them up 
into a ball until they become tiny, tiny little brains in a, in a lab, human brains, like only millimetres big, really. And then the t this team taught them how to play Pong, the computer game <laughs> from the 70s, right? And, they, and this is where the sci-fi reference comes in, is that they, they basically were literally living in the matrix, these brain cells, these brain organoids, because their world was Pong, like playing Pong. And <laughs> I've been thinking about this again this week, because um, if anyone's picked up a copy of New Scientist that's going around for Blue Dot and in, in this week's mag, we've got a big story about growing brains in the lab, growing human brains, tiny human brains in the lab. And you get some extraordinary things. One thing that blew my mind is that you get basically get brain waves um, that you can record um, in these tiny little brains. And they're the same as about what you see in a, in a fetus at, not, at eight months. And then there's another change in these brain, in these brain, little brain organoids that you see at nine months. And one of the researchers said it was as if the cells register that they're about to be born and, and go through this change. So it's starting to get really, really <laughs> mad, actually, isn't it? Yeah. So we should be clear that these are only a few millimeters big, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but what was if we put them inside robots? Well, they they put them into mouse brains. So the, the reason they only get so they're, they're, they're so small is they don't have blood vessels, right? And they have to diffuse everything yeah. they need. But so to get around that, they've started transplanting them into mouse brains, and then the things grow into the mouse. And you, then you do get a mouse-human hybrid brain, but it then is allowed to grow bigger. And oh, I mean, what what do you guys think of this? Because <laughs> I, I feel like you've just come in here on mushrooms and started. <laughs> we come to <laughs> that is insane yeah. I mean the levels of what you can do with that yeah I mean can they play Tetris next <laughs> <laughs> they, they should do the podcast next <laughs> next wow. the, yeah, the other geologist next um, I do I, mean, I kind of wondered about this you know these, these progressive changes and what is sentience you know so what 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 would qualify these 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 effectively brains on a stick or these hybrid robot brains or psycho mice like what would be what would what would be a qualifier for them to be well not to be human because i don't want to anthropomorphize no, it too much but like what would what would be the well it's it's when they start suffering like when do you have to worry about that right at the moment they are just i think you can probably not worry about it yet not i'm not talking about when they're in a mouse brain but just when they're a few a little tiny ball on a chip but uh, yeah, that's the like. Whole how do we know they're not feeling emotions already? Oh well, yeah. Like when do we stop? Yeah, well that's that's like, the that questions you need to start yeah, thinking yeah. about, and they, they are starting to think about it. But it is kind of extraordinary that they're being able to do this kind of stuff. Yeah, there was a researcher quoted in our piece that said they think we'll eventually get an organoid that has a mouse-like level of sentience. So. Yeah. Which is significant, right? Yeah. yeah. If it's a mouse level, then we have lots of rules about how you treat mice yeah. in research, yeah, yeah. and so you'd have to have the same rules applied to the, the mini brains. There's some humans I wouldn't trust to make decisions as, <laughs> as much as I would a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean what's, what's the motivation for the research is the other thing that kind of comes to my mind. Not that I don't think you should do something anyway, but what was the kind of uh, the motivation for doing that? Was it? They want to look at brain development primarily and uh, and look at then how you can treat things like dementia and all sorts of neurological stuff 
Um, so there are sort of, you know, of course there are noble, noble reasons behind it, but then you can't help thinking about uh, the horror side of things as well, basically. Yeah, the sci-fi side. I remember yeah. when I, I did a record in 2016 and I was working with scientists that were developing brain neurons in petri dishes, not to the point where they were making mini brains, but enough to look at the brain cells to see how dementia was affecting them in, and to find a cure, basically. But actually, kind of creatively looking at it, it looked like a star constellation when you look through the microscope. It was incredible. Wow. And that link between our brains and, and it's almost that, um, that level of things within a thing. Yeah. You know, are we the planet the pl within the planet? Are we going to expand and, and realize that actually our, our universe is within a body somewhere else? And <laughs> it, it takes your mind to a different place. But I think the beauty of it is always going to be there. It's just who is controlling it. <laughs> I have to so say, you sounded like you were on mushrooms then. <laughs> Are you imagine sitting on your mountain of diamonds on this other planet with your, your mouse army? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, it's gone there. <laughs> now, um, every, almost every week on the podcast, we tend to look at something... Um, about the climate crisis or the biodiversity crisis. And with the recent heat wave we've had um, in Europe, it's very tempting to talk about the implications for life as we know it in the coming years, you know, if we don't make rapid emission cuts of CO2. But as we've said, um, we're at a festival and we want to be a bit lighter in tone and a bit more solution oriented. So this is our solution segment. Yeah, so, um, so I wrote a book about this. Um, it's about spending a trillion dollars in different ways. And one of the consequences of, of it was um, I sent the book to Elon Musk and he read it. And he set up a $100 million carbon capture and storage competition, which is one thing I'd recommended in, the, in this carbon drawdown section of the book, which was really cool. But so in this part of the show, I want to award everyone on the panel $100 million, <laughs> right? And, and see what you're going to do with it. Um, Hannah. You've got hundred million dollars. I'll buy you one pint here at Blue Dot. <laughs> I, sh I should say you you have to sp you can't you can't just buy booze or you know an, a, a tropical island or something. You, it's got to be to do with saving the world or saving hu humans. Something. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always so many things you want to. Get. Everybody deserves to have clean water. Everybody deserves yeah. to have education and how you implement that. I think if I could invent anything and use that money, it would be to take the leaders of our world and make them less narcissistic and give them some uh, injections of empathy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and make sure they take everything seriously because we are shouting and screaming for things to happen and be, ha and be taken seriously quickly. I think that's the problem at the moment. Um, you know, I guess the hopeful side of it, there is in the most amazing inventions and people working so hard and you get to meet them all the time, which is really amazing, P fighting that. But I think there needs to be a way to, to join that money. I don't know what I would do with that money. But I just want to do something with it that enables us to feel like we are all worthy and deserving of, of everything this planet has to offer without ruining it. And then I'd go and mine all the diamonds on the <laughs> tiny planet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chris? It's a really difficult question. I've been thinking about it hard since you told me you were going to ask me it. Um, I think there's, there's great value in educating our leaders, but I think there's great value in empowering the people, right? So I think empowerment of people and giving people agency 
um, however that might come to them, is a better ground-up approach than expecting our leaders with power and money to do anything good for us, okay? And I, and I, and I mean that with all of the political barbs I can muster. I think, I think as well, you know, I'm a big supporter of the unions. I think unionisation and paying members' dues for people to become... Because um, I, think, I think there's... I mean, this isn't a union pitch, by the way. But I do think there's something about shared recognition of shared values and empowerment that comes from people from that and one thing that often stops people coming together is because they can't afford to you know you know we could think about strike payments in in the union sense but there's reasons why people don't come together it's because networks are dispersed globally we're dealing with global problems when it comes to climate change there's people with good intentions in different areas but it's hard to get them together so whatever can get those nodes connected with connectors and give those people money to have more agency to then go and solve problems locally. Because I think the other problem is, is that we might come up with solutions which solve a problem in one part of the world. And this is a very capitalist approach. You know, this looks like a great idea through this lens here, but actually it's not applicable to another country or another culture, right? So actually empowering people locally to go and tackle issues in a way that is spiritually and culturally valid and worthwhile for them, so that they feel empowered after they've tackle those problems is the thing to do so that's my that's what I would do is give money to the people Abby I think I would maybe try and do something to help try and make fashion more sustainable so the equivalent to a rubbish truck of textiles ends up in landfill every second and the fashion industry is the third most damaging to the climate not to mention the um, exploitation of garment workers so the only way I think to fix it is to try and make fashion more circular so the problem there's a problem with the materials we use they're not easy to recycle and um, we just aren't recycling them so there are lots of companies looking at ways to make um, textiles in a much more environmentally friendly way and to make ones that are then going to be easy to recycle so um, there's some interesting projects people are looking at making clothes from algae and from like the waste products of like cheese making or milk making industries and then there's also some really cool science going into looking at how to recycle cotton and different fabrics that we use so um, I think I would try and look at like one specific problem like that because today only one percent of the world's textile waste is turned back into clothing so hopefully with a hundred million dollars I don't know what you could do with it but hopefully you could do something to try and change that mm -hmm. a little bit yeah it's a really um good point to make and we we had a cover story a few weeks ago all about this and we'll put a link in the show notes to that i think if i had a hundred million i've already spent a trillion so i'm just <laughs> no, no, spend a spend hundred million um so there's loads of ways to, that people are looking at to try and increase the reflectivity of clouds and especially in the arctic this is where it's desperately needed because if we can cool down the arctic by uh, increasing the sunlight that's reflected off away from Earth by making clouds whiter, basically, we could cool the Arctic. And as you know, um, the Arctic's already warmed by more than three degrees from um, pre-industrial times. Um, it's the fastest warming place on Earth. It's globally important to stabilize the whole climate. Uh, it's really, really vital we don't lose the Arctic, but we are losing it. So I would chuck some money at um, looking at these ways to increase the reflectivity of clouds in the Arctic. And, and the other cool thing is that if it worked, 
you might be able to use it in, on, on the Great Barrier Reef and cool down that area, which is, you know, that's about to disappear as well. So we don't know if it will work, but it doesn't need that much money to test this, and it's, the payback could be um, incredible. So I really want, you know, to, to see this happening. So David King at, at Cambridge, he's, uh, he's trying to do this, but doesn't have enough money, so let's chuck him some money. Uh, and I'd say 50 million to him, and then 50 million I'd go towards different lawsuits, climate lawsuits that are being drawn up against governments and companies who are dragging their feet on emissions reductions. So to support climate lawsuits would be my other thing. How do they do the reflectivity? Do they... So the best plan at the moment is you, get, you have a boat with a massive pipe on it and it sucks up seawater and sprays it into the lower atmosphere and that seeds clouds and basically grows clouds. But we don't know about how, how long they last for, what the knock-on effects would be more widely out, out of the Arctic region. But it, it does look quite promising and it's been costed up a bit. And basically it looks really promising. It's, it's really worth trying, but no one's really given them any money to do it. So it'd be, I think it'd be a, it's a really promising thing to, to check out. Yeah. So now I think it's audience question time. Yeah, so. um, if anyone wants to, got a mic? Oh. Anyone, um, anyone got a question? <laughs> Ruben, come on. Nice hat. Uh, so could you take a, a large, ma a very big mouse brain and transplant it into a human brain? <laughs> <laughs> Are you an evil scientist? <laughs> That's like pinky in the brain, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I can't do. I mean, I mean, yeah. Who's who's brain? Who's going to agree to that? To take a mouse brain? Would you would you be willing to do that? No, no. I mean, I I guess you could, but um, yeah, we wouldn't want to do that. But thanks. That's a great question. Thank you. One. Do you want to come up? Um. So. How did you teach the brains to play a game if they don't have any limbs? That's a great um. question. Um, I, I, I don't know the answer to it, but I'm going to try and answer it anyway as a classic scientist. I wonder if it's because there's different ways of controlling things. You can control some things on your video game by hitting a button or waggling a joystick, right? So there's a physical way. But there's also other ways of communicating through through radioactive, you know, like ways. I guess I am sort of saying that they are doing it through the power of mind, but through some some. Is as anybody knows how to answer this question? They're doing it. <laughs> they're doing it by thinking about it and by other ways of, of stimulating the machine to move the bat at the end of the pong table. Yeah. So um, they do have. Um, if people lose a limb and they need to put a robot arm on them, say, then the brain can learn how to control the the electronics in the arm again. And and it's a, so basically, they, they I think they hooked up these um, brain organoids to a computer and let it learn how to move the thing up and down. But that's a great question, and you've pretty much floored us all. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Okay, any easy questions? <laughs> um, yeah, this one here. Yeah. Hi, it's um, Tom Wilson. It's the JWST, um, which you talk about how it's imaging um, gases in um, rocky planets. So it reminded me of the um, story you ran about um, the discovery of particularly interesting gases in, I think it was Venus. Venus. Are they going to be looking at that? I actually don't think they're looking at Venus Definitely not in the first year, but they are. JWST will be looking in our solar system at lots of different things. They're looking. They've. They've. Or it's already discovered a new asteroid, and they're going to be looking at the ice giants. So, and they're going to be studying comets. And and so there's there's a certain type of comet that we think might be up to 30% a specific mineral, which would mean that it would be as old as the solar system. And what it's going to be doing is looking at those comets to verify whether that's true or not, to see whether comets could have brought those specific things to Earth. And it's going to be looking at Pluto and studying Pluto's uh, temperature on its surface and stuff. So it's definitely doing lots in the solar system. But I'm not sure about whether it's looking for phosphine on Venus. I think there's lots of missions um, in the next decade or so that is actually going to Venus to do samples of the atmosphere to double check for phosphine. But yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, any more questions? Someone at the back there. Hi, uh, my name's Wynn. Uh, it was a question really about geoengineering. So I guess there's more over this side <laughs> of the table a little bit. So um, at what point is the risk of not doing geoengineering outweighed by the risk of geoengineering? And is anyone looking at that? They are very much looking at that, yeah. There's, that's all they're doing, is looking, basically looking at the risk of it and not doing any even very, very preliminary tests of geoengineering, yeah. of solar radiation management. So, yeah, that's, that is all they're doing, is, is agonising over the, over the risks. There's some huge geopolitical and ethical issues about geoengineering as well in terms of clouds because the atmosphere is a global phenomenon, so it's not like you solve the problem here and it stays here. You need broad geopolitical consensus that what you're going to do here or here is going to affect everything around the world. So you need to have an incredibly joined up way of thinking about tackling this and therefore funding this. So I think there's that issue. I mean, more kind of philosophically from my point, the, the issue with geoengineering is that it maybe gives a pass to people to continue doing the things which are causing the problem, whether it's you know, carbon dioxide emissions, whether it's failure to recycle and reuse, Whatever it is, it basically says, well, we, we can carry on doing this because in the common capture and storage, which is something I've worked on, is the same thing. Is it the silver bullet that means we can have business as usual if we can sort of outpace that technology we've had in the past with this new approach of storing the, the, the hazardous things? So I think there's a really difficult path to be taken way beyond the technology. Maybe I'm a scientist speaking here, but I think solving this problem isn't as hard as it is solving people. But actually, um, you know, I, I totally agree with that. But, you know, people are already having a free pass to carry on and, and do business as usual and not doing anything. Which is why I like the lawsuits. You know, yeah. Uh, so it's a really, really interesting thing, a way of tackling it. Uh, so this is a question for Chris. Um, if you were a geologist in the distant future, is there any indication in the geology of the current rapid change in the climate? Yeah, so it's been well talked about. The Anthropocene is the new geological era we've allegedly entered. There's a big discussion that's been going on for about 20 years now. And all of that argument is framed around whether or not our activities will are sufficient enough that we'll be a, 
a stratigraphic, a rock expression of that in the, in the rock record. So in the same way we can go to the Peak District and see coal and work out there used to be ancient forests there, will there be a, a layer of plastic and high radionuclide emissions from weapons testing in a specific layer of rock if we were fast-forwarded to 200 million years, let's say. So yeah, that's absolutely discussion going on, whether we have crossed the threshold for that. And it's an interesting ethical thing whether... I mean, there's a, there's a mechanistic thing. We seem like we've done a lot, but will that stay in the rock record? We might actually be quite transient, it turns out, as a, as a species and quite transient with a major impact that kills us off. Um, Let's <laughs> end on something. Let's quickly get another question. Not on this one. I mean, there's that bit of it, but then there's also um, there's a mechanistic thing, whether that will actually be preserved in the rock record and then whether we should be framing it. But yeah, we absolutely are talking about the Anthropocene. So to anyone... You talk about training the, the organelles, but how does that work? Because if it's a computer, it's kind of easy to set up a carrot and a stick approach. But if it's just an organelle on a slab, how does that work? How do you establish when it has done well and when it's done poorly at a computer game? Yeah, uh, I'm going to refer you back to our last answer on that, which is um, we were all flawed. And, uh, <laughs> you know what? There, we did do a story on this, which I should have read more deeply ahead of it. Um, so... You know, if you look on our website, uh, look up the show notes for this um, episode of the podcast, I'll put a link into that and you'll be able to read all about it. If we have made um, artificial human brains and skin, will we eventually make an artificial human? That's the idea. I say that. I don't, no, that's not really the, that's not really the idea. They, I mean... They, they, they want to make bits of, of humans so that you can replace them, uh, you know, organs or, or even parts of the brain that have worn out or regrow them. Extra uh, eyes. Yeah, it's always good have a third eye. We're back to mushrooms. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's to... Uh, I don't think they want to build a completely artificial human, but they want to build different parts of a human to uh, then help with, with medical work. Hi, my name is Marek. Um, Elon Musk is, let's say, controversial. I wonder what's, what's the status, what is happening with the, with the contest you mentioned following your, your book. So is there an outcome out of that? From the Elon Musk one? Yeah. So uh, he's paid out some money. He hasn't paid out the full 100 million, but it's called the Carbon X Prize. And they have started giving it to different labs who are showing promising work in, in carbon storage. So. Uh, it's just ongoing. But, but what it has done is stimulate a lot of different smaller labs to start up uh, and, and, and you know, accelerate their work on, on doing this. Although I, I should say, I think, like you say, it's a, it, it could be a silver bullet. I just wonder if he's saving his money for the Twitter lawsuit. <laughs> In my That's only a billion dollars. <laughs> OK, look, it's time to wrap up. Thank you for coming to see us. It's great. This is the first time we've done the podcast live, so it's really great to see. Hey, is anyone who, who listens to our podcast? Hands up, everyone. Oh, that's, that's not bad, is it? That's great. <laughs> the producer puts his hand up. <laughs> <in the front row. laughs> yeah. No, she doesn't listen to it. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks to Blue Dot for hosting us. Yeah. Um, thanks to our special guests, Hannah Peel and Chris Jackson. Thanks to Abby and... Uh, yeah, do go and listen to the podcast, this very one. Um, thanks for coming.
This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.